I literally had two FBI agents show up in our lunchroom one day trying to buy a copy of our software to use for knowledge sharing inside the FBI. I mean, that is how badly people wanted this offering. Fundamentally, anyone can kind of produce a piece of software. Software is only ever a means to an end. It can create an amazing user experience, but without a viewpoint and an opinion behind it, it's just going to flounder. Communities don't happen organically. Communities exist because someone wanted them to exist. Fundamentally, we're not just a software company. We're a community company. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I sit down with Alex Miller, former GM of Stack Overflow Enterprise. First, Alex and I dig into his background and how he rose up the ranks at Stack Overflow. Then, we get to know more about Stack Overflow Enterprise, what it does, and how it came to be. Alex then explains his framework for what he sees as the primary four constituencies of enterprise software. We move on to some of his advice about qualifying customers, discovering feature requirements, and what he's learned about customer-facing training and professional services efforts. It was a lot of fun to have Alex on the show, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, Alex, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Cool, so just to get it kicked off, I think uh, I'd love to have you just give a quick overview of your background and maybe a little bit about how you got into enterprise software. Sure. So my current roles as the general manager of teams and enterprise at Stack Overflow, which is basically all of our Q&A that we help teams and enterprises do, so sharing knowledge privately. I've been at Stack for about seven and a half years now. This is my third job there. Originally, I was hired as chief of staff to our CEO, which is one of the best jobs I can say you'll ever get. Like Chief of staff is just random special projects and traveling around the world with someone. It's a really great role. After that, uh, what it turned out is I was kind of doing all of these operational projects, mainly as those special projects. So I took over as we were really scaling the company kind of from 50 to 300 people, building out offices, putting legal stuff into place, HR, IT, and I think most importantly, company culture. As you're growing through something like that, getting your culture right from the beginning, or at least trying really hard and trying to do all those right things, you'll never get everything just right from day one, really pays dividends when you're trying to go through kind of those hyper growth phases and double the number of people you have every year. Before that, I was in another startup here in New York. Before that, I was an event producer in California, producing things like TechCrunch 50, This Week in Startups, other podcasts, they're very good. And before that, I was actually in PR and kind of a concert and event producer. So everything from, you know, little string quartets to U2 at the Rose Bowl. So I've always had a very kind of operational, special project type background things. And that just kind of over time, 
that and interesting computers and technology just kind of led me into, into the tech space and software. Perfect. That's great. Okay, and so I'm guessing that the evolution or introduction of Stack Overflow Enterprise is actually your entrance into the enterprise software ecosystem as well. Is that right? Yeah, that was really, especially if we're talking about enterprises, you know, thousands and thousands of people, huge deals. Stack Overflow Enterprise was really the first time that I was hands-on pushing into that space. Great. And so let's just give a quick overview of what Stack Overflow Enterprise is, and then we'll dive into a little bit about like how it came about. Yeah, so as, as a lot of people know, Stack Overflow is the world's largest community of software developers. We have more than 50 million people a month that are on stackoverflow.com, asking each other questions, getting answers. Most importantly, as we like to say, they're learning, they're sharing their knowledge, and they're building their careers. So one of the things we realized about three years ago when we were starting with this is that, hey, our mission is to help software developers learn and share their knowledge. But we only have a way for them to do that with knowledge they can share publicly. And given how much of the information in this world is now embedded in software and how much software drives all our lives, that software is not built by one person sitting alone in their house. Honestly, that's never really been true. But I think as time has gone on and with the advent of more and more APIs and SDKs and things, even if you think there's more you can do individually, you're still fundamentally actually dependent on more people. You need better tools for collaborating. So we've been like the number one forum, you know, type software and knowledge exchange for so many different types of technologies, whether that's Android and iOS or C Sharp or I kid you not, we still get dozens of Fortran questions a month because someone has to maintain those systems. It was still always about information that could be public. And because so many of us work in teams, there's so much that we can't do and be public with. So what do you do if you have a question about your build system? What do you do if you have a question about who to talk to inside your company or what your policies are? And we just realized, hey, if we're going to help developers really be their best, we need to do something to fulfill our mission there. And so we decided, hey, great, let's go start with the enterprise. Let's basically just go take a private version of the Stack Overflow software, spin it up inside some enterprises, and figure out how you actually you know, really help these companies build a community. Because fundamentally, anyone can kind of produce a piece of software. I mean, there's a thousand open source clones of Stack Overflow out there. But what we learned really early on at Stack Overflow was that fundamentally, we're not just a software company. We're a community company. I think that's true for almost all software companies out there. I think the ones that are especially really successful is that they understand software is only ever a means to an end. It can create an amazing user experience, but without a viewpoint and an opinion behind it, it's just going to flounder. And so for us, that viewpoint and opinion is about how you build a community, and it's the reason that we actually have a whole support team and a whole service and deployment model that we work with with people. Half of the job is spinning up the software, writing a good piece of software. The other half is really teaching people how to use it and how to build their community against it. Okay, cool. So Stack Over Enterprise is... First of all, it's, it's a private instance of Stack Overflow that you install into the data center or private, you know, VPC. Yeah, we can we can run it for you in our cloud, or you can install it on any infrastructure you run, pretty much. But so fully private, uh, not going to be something that you know you're worried about the data going out to right zero connections to the outside world. Right, and so big companies are interested in this because they're concerned about the data and they want to make sure it's all private. Yep. 
Makes total sense to me. Yeah. How did you decide that was the right opportunity for Stack Overflow to pursue when it came to enterprise uh, offerings? People were knocking down our door for it. We'd, over the years, I mean, my favorite thing is I literally had two FBI agents show up in our lunchroom one day trying to buy a copy of our software to use for, like, knowledge sharing inside the FBI. I mean, that is how badly people wanted this offering. And for years, again, it just, we didn't think it really fit in with what we were doing. We didn't know how we'd build communities inside these companies and actually make the software work for them. And to that Really, that's what we realized. It's like, okay, we need to find a way to make this work. And so that's what my project was, to go out and figure out how do you make this work. Okay, so you, were you still serving as the chief of staff at this point? No, so I was VP of operations at that point. Okay. There was a three or four month period where I overlapped doing both, but it was it was basically me, a product manager, and two developers who went off and, you know, the company was working on some big transformations to our talent product, which is a huge business for us still, mm. and an amazing way to find a job, stackoverflow.com slash jobs. And so we we couldn't be taking kind of too much of the core focus out of the company, right? They needed to keep working on that transformation of the talent business that they were doing, but we still wanted to pursue this. And so it's like, all right, great. Why don't the four of you go kind of sit over here in your own little corner and put together and a skunk works a, a, a tiger team? Tiger team. I like uh-huh. skunk works. Skunk works. Okay, great. Yeah. So I think what's really interesting, right, is oftentimes, you know. I talk to folks that have a successful open source project, or maybe it's a company that has a more consumer-leading product, um, and they want to go up market. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's sounds like what you decided to do. Like, did you when you started this this process to build Stack Overflow Enterprise? Did you have a pretty clear picture of what you wanted to look like, or was this like, let's get this little team together, they'll go figure it out, and then they'll offer this to the market? We knew what we wanted the end state to look like. The okay. end state was we want every company, obviously, buying this thing and having their own Stack Overflow community internally just for all of that private knowledge that they can't put out on the public internet. Sure. We had not a great idea of what that actually looked like in practice beyond using a copy of their software, right? We didn't know, okay, what features do we need to add to the software? All right, well, we know we definitely need to add single sign-on so it can integrate into their environment. We've got to make sure it actually runs in their environment, and we need to make sure that they can like deploy it and run it and actually use it. But sure. the, the the real details of what that looks like, we weren't sure about. There were also a lot of questions about down the line, what does this look like? You know, do people want to run this themselves? Do they want us to run it? Do mm-hmm. they want it on StackOverflow.com? Do they want it completely standalone? So, really, there's only one way to answer those questions, which is going out and talking to customers. Great. And so you led that project to go out and talk to customers. How do you find the right offering and bring it to market in that process? And then even, you know, you're at a company where, you know, focus is key. Like we, I think we were talking offline. That's a key part of this. How do you keep that focus but still build in a new line of business, you know, at the same time? And that, that's, that's a complicated process. How do you get the rest of the organization on board and leadership on board? So t- just talk about the general structure sure. you guys used to do that. So I think the first thing to really remember about is when you're going into enterprise software, especially, and again, talking big company enterprise software, is there is not a buyer, right? Everyone talks about who their buyer inside the company is. There's like four or five buyers, right? Or the, 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 the entity is this agglomeration of four kind of key constituencies, as I like to think about it, which is, all right, who's going to champion it? Who's going to use it? Who's going to approve it? And who's going to write the check for it? Depending on what you're doing, you know, you might think more or less important. At the end of the day, if you don't have all four of those people on board, 
you won't be successful. You might get the first year deal, but you're going to lose it after that. Mm. And you've got to do things to serve and support all four of those constituencies. So taking a look at it from us, right? Who's going to champion it? For us, it's probably someone who runs an internal shared services team, right? It's someone who is basically really frustrated that this massive dev team of 500 or 1,000 people or more is not sharing knowledge and building as fast as they could be. Who's going to use it? Individual developers. That's, for us, really almost the easiest one because they do no stack overflow. They're used to it. They'll give it a try, at least, internally. But ironically, you know, when it comes to getting the first-year deal, they're not very important. Uh, I hate to say it, right? The developers are more and more influential. Where they really are a big deal, though, is who's going to, you know, build it up and use it and get the, that second-year renewal. Who's going to approve it? Infosec, legal, finance. You can have the best product in the world if you don't know how to work with those people. Best-case scenario, your deal is going to take you twice as long as it should. Worst-case scenario, you're never going to get in the door especially if it's a regulated industry like finance. Oh, worst case scenario is you're going to spend three years and then never get the deal, right? Absolutely. You're going to waste so much of time, Absolutely. opportunity cost, right? Yeah. And then finally, who's going to write the check for it? Again, you might have a champion who's amazing and loves your product and is wonderful and is super influential, but like fundamentally, if they cannot get someone to put down a quarter of a million dollars or a million or two or three, whatever your product costs, doesn't really matter if you have the other things in place. But that check, that wallet person, only comes if you've got a really good champion and a user base identified internally. Cool. And so you went off to go kind of like figure this out. Like how did you, like when you first started, you had probably some hints and ideas around like what that might look like. So we, we had customers coming to us saying, hey, we're interested. You know, Microsoft came to us very early. Great. And said, hey, we're interested in this thing. They'd approached us before in the past, wanted it. So we just said, all right, great, like, write us a check for this amount, and we, you know, it's funny, we did a flat rate originally, kind of like per instance, and we've since moved to per user pricing for everyone. Sure. But we just wanted to see, like, will people actually write, like, a six-figure check for this thing? And the answer is yes, people will write a six-figure check for it. And then from there, it was like, all right, great, so you're interested in buying it, like, what do you need it to do? Yeah. Right? And then I think one of our big goals was, you know, MVP, right? What's the absolute minimum you can do? Get it into the environment. Use it. Because again, the customer, and I think you know, there's a million fancy quotes from Ford and Jobs and everything on this of like they don't actually know what they want, sure. right? They have an idea of what it is. They know what they want their end state to look like. If they knew how to build it themselves to get there, they would have built it themselves to get there. So actually, getting it into the environment, because the other thing is that once you have something working in their hands, it's a lot easier to actually push back on feature requests, right? When you're still building, if you're just off in this back corner building something, they can constantly pepper you with, it needs to do this, it needs to do that, it needs to work like this. If they actually have it in their hands, you can point out all the workarounds and the ways that they can use it. So a really good example of this is clients are constantly asking us for two big features when it comes to information sharing, which is one is, I want every search that I run on my internal instance to also return results from the external instance. And the second is, I want to import a bunch of old content from old systems. In both cases, they don't actually want to do that. One, there's huge info security concerns on the first one, and on the second one, all that content's stale and out of date. So we actually did a couple of those imports, and one of the things we found out from the clients almost immediately was, oh, there's actually no value to this old content we imported. It's stale, it's out of date. People didn't mind recreating it. The only way we were going to find that out was by doing it a couple times. And since then, we get the question all the time, we push back on it all the time. 
And so it's, it's interesting too. I think uh, one of the non-obvious challenges you sort of mentioned to me offline was the idea that because you had this strong bottom-up pool and mm-hmm. people were familiar with Stack Overflow, they came in with some preconceived notions. Yeah. They especially thought, you know, what they're trying to buy a lot of the time is this experience they have where they run a Google search, the first results Stack Overflow every time, and it has the result they want every time. And they're like, great, I just want that internally. And this is also probably just like an individual software developer there. Well, building a community internally requires you being able to influence everyone else to use it. As I say, communities don't happen organically. Communities exist because someone wanted them to exist. So one person just setting it up, without a really strong champion there, it's nothing's really going to happen. And so we really do have to educate them on, on, okay, here's what you actually can buy from us, right? You can buy the software and you can buy us helping you do it, but you're going to have to commit some resources to actually getting it in there being successful. And you're going to have to address it out to a large enough group to do it. And you have to have an organization that wants to do this. There are companies that come to us, not irregularly, who are like, I want to buy your software because I want to tear down these silos. And we're like, do you actually? Like, I get that you do, but you know, let's say you've got this structure where you've got VPs who run these siloed organizations that, let's say, consult for other companies and things, and they view the software that their teams build as intellectual property that they can sell to other parts of their business. Mm. Well, are those people actually going to encourage or even allow their teams to collaborate with teams on other parts of the company? There's so many interesting political and structural challenges around these really big companies. Like, oftentimes, they are their own ecosystems unto themselves, right? Absolutely. And so, acknowledging that and building software that sort of sees that, it, I think is it's it's a great point. The one thing that I love that you're talking about that I think is 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 really really interesting is this obsession with what you you're, what you talk about is community creation, right? Because you know that the core thing that's going to make an organization successful is to have 500 engineers who are using Stack Overflow Enterprise daily or often, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's the like minimum threshold for the network effect, for the knowledge to all be shared there. And so the thing that really I think is important to highlight with that, for most companies it might not be community, right? But it's some threshold of knowledge and engagement. Pain. It's a threshold of pain, too. What do you mean? Well, when you've got that many developers, you have a massive pain around knowledge sharing and just the communication overhead. And you are willing to pay a lot of money to solve that pain. Because not only is it sort of like expensive in time delays and stuff, but you're shipping products slower because of it. Like We have data that shows... Companies that have deployed our product ship things faster because mm-hmm. their teams don't spend as much time stuck on problems, and they find other teams that have started things or have partially solved the problems for them. You see this, and I'm not going to claim to be the only company in the world that can do this. You see this when people deploy GitHub internally, right? Mm-hmm. They get better code reuse. We get better code use and better knowledge reuse too. So that problem scales exponentially with the number of people. And so... I think what any company pursuing going down this line has to ask themselves is like, what's the real pain that we're solving here and how are we going to solve it kind of 10 times better than anybody else? Yeah, and I think the the interesting thing here is you focus so much on that and you measure it and you make it an important part of 
like how your customers adopt your software. Like you just said, like you don't even think about it. You just sell software. You sell like community, community yeah. and software. So, but the the important takeaway that I see here is I'm guessing that you've built a lot of tooling to help make sure that these communities are built internally. Yes. Right. And so like that type of training feels like if you go into an enterprise sale and you just give them the software and you don't give them any of the perspective, community, training, whatever you want to call it, they might not adopt it, right? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of service organizations. So how, yes, talk yeah. about how you how do you organize? How do you go about that? What do you produce? Yeah, so I think this actually goes back to the idea of focus too. Because again, you have to know what you're doing. There's so few products out there in the world that actually adopt themselves and Grant can see me doing air quotes right now. And even the ones that you think of that adopt themselves don't usually, right? That that's usually a story that's been crafted to help sell it better internally. Sure. I went back to that like communities, things exist because someone, someone wanted them to and has done the work to do that. So we've built an entire service and support organization around making sure that people adopt our software the right way and build their community the right way. And we're focused on that because, you know, it's a long-term ROI for the companies, right? They're really going to see, they'll, they'll start seeing some immediate benefits within a couple of weeks of deploying enterprise but where they really get it is a year or two down the line. But we can't wait for that, right? We, we, can't, we can't wait a year to see how they're doing and then adjust. We've figured out what are those metrics and things that we have to be adjusting and tweaking, not even from day one, but before we go in, that are going to really make the difference for it. And I think that also, you know, I, I just said, before they even go in, goes to qualification of your customers. Especially in the early days, qualifying your customers well, picking people who are going to be good partners to you is probably the most important thing you can do when it comes to the customer side of your business. Because if they're not going to talk to you and give you feedback on what they're doing, how they're doing it, show you the technical tweaks maybe they've implemented. I mean, our current deployment model, the, the evolution we made to that is based on work that one of our own clients did to deploy it more easily inside their environment. So getting that, getting the sense of which deployments worked, which ones didn't work, and then constantly moving that up the funnel so you can spend less and less time on people who aren't going to convert or who aren't going to be good clients will pay massive dividends in the end for you. Mm. So, so taking what you learn as you kind of go out and try this out and being like, okay, that didn't work. Let me now adjust how I qualify potential customers so that I don't get in the situation yeah, it's constant on. iteration, just like you yeah. do with actual software that you're writing. You know, you, you constantly tweak your code to try and get it a little bit better, to optimize it, to figure out what works. Yeah. You have to do the same thing in every part of your business. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you know, early on, and this is true for early, you know, obviously this wasn't a new like company that you were starting. This is a new product line, and it's a new offering, and it's a, but you're basically it's the same. In a lot of ways, it was yeah. a new company. Right. It's because. Selling enterprise software was not something that Stack Overflow had ever done before. Right. And it's a very different business than kind of the existing engagement and talent businesses that we'd had in the past. So we absolutely had to figure out a lot and then actually go back and retrain a lot of parts of the organization on how you have to do something. Mm. What was the dynamic like between as enterprise started to really come together? What was the dynamic between 
you know, what you were building. And now because you have enterprise and teams, which is kind of the hosted version of this, the dynamic between that and the rest of the Stack Overflow. Uh, well, the first year was really fun and easy. Because the first year was just us, again, sitting over on this side, kind of thinking, like, all right, we're messing around with stuff we're doing. You know, every win that we got was a huge win, and there was no such thing as a loss because expectations were all zero, mm. right? Then you get, like, you know, that's that's the hacking in your garage side of phase of, like, messing around with robots and sure. stuff, right? Then we actually started having that initial success, and we're like, okay, we're going to commit to this. Like, we're going to hire a couple salespeople. We're going to hire customers. I'd been doing all the sales initially. I'd been doing all the support initially. Again, it was four of us. Okay, well, now we've got 10 people. Like, now the company is actually, we basically raised money from the rest of the company to sure. do this. Okay, well, now we actually have metrics we have to perform against. And so that meant two things. One, we had to perform a lot better, but it also meant, hey, we were reliant on the rest of the company, things like HR, legal, finance, all these groups for things. We had to then train them how this industry in this area expects to do business with you because it's not the same. Right. And we can't execute our job and do our job if we don't have that kind of appropriate support. But we obviously also had to recognize they still, too, had their own requirements. Like, we had to adapt certain things to that. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent talking about, like, billing models and invoicing and, you know, legal documents. Like, it's a huge amount of time. But again, it's just like anything else, just like tech debt. If you don't get it right up front, or if you're not at least flexible enough to iterate on it and try and evolve it, it will sap you just like tech debt does on the kind of performance side. Sure. You're willing to put up with a little bit in the beginning, but like acknowledge that you have adopted it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really like the flexibility example. Like, you know, just figure out the minimum you need to do up front because it's going to change over time. You don't want to over-optimize too early. Yeah. I want to just kind of lean back into this. Like, what is your training materials or or org, what does that look like structurally? How many people are in it? What are they doing? What's day one? For the like, customer-facing one or internally facing? For your customer-facing. I think this this is like such a, probably an often missed thing in enterprise software. I feel like people write some docs and they're like, okay, go get started. Right. But, but you're really engaging with your customers. Like, just like, I think that's a really interesting yeah, model. Yeah, so the first thing is we've got our, our sales teams trained on this pretty heavily, right? They know the vision that they're selling. They know the end state that they're selling, and they can definitely talk about it. As I like to say, my view is that sales should be able to talk about kind of the the basics, at least, right? Kind of what the framework is. And where you have kind of engineering or specialists come in is when you're talking about the customization to the client end state, right? So, you know, to use a technical example, your salespeople should be able to talk about how we support SAML and, you know, what flavors of it if they get a question about, okay, well, here's how our SAML setup is, well, no, at that point you bring in sales engineering. It's actually no different for us on like the community development side. Sales can absolutely talk about, okay, what's the benefit of a community? How do we generally do it? As soon as someone says, okay, here's like the nature of our orgs, the teams were like, all right, let's bring in our community development team and have them talk to you. So the key parties we have involved is we've got a salesperson on every deal. We've got a customer engineer on every deal, which is basically the technical deployment side mm -hmm. of things, helping you get it up and running. And we've got a community development manager. And those are really kind of our secret sauce people who have really all been at the company for at least two or three years at this point and just know how they've taken all these lessons. They have this playbook. They know how to customize these things and work with our customers and actually help them kind of get it up and running, how to train it, who we need to work with internally. 
the way I like to phrase it is they've got a playbook. There is no one-size-fits-all plan sure. here because it, it really does depend on what their internal culture is like, what teams are involved, how big the deployment is, what they want to achieve. So they'll talk both pre-sale, you know, we'll have a couple calls, we'll try and understand it, and then once the contract's signed, they'll really dig into it. And there's probably, you know, kind of a two- to four-week period where the technical guys are getting everything spun up and starting to get things connected to SAML, install the software, all that jazz. And the community team really during that time is... So, so the interesting thing is that's where most people stop, right? So most people stop right. it, they've implemented, they're ready, and then they're like, go, you've got the software. Right. And so this is where I think it's really interesting and it's a unique way to go to market is you're saying, that's right. great. That, that's, that, that's 10% of the deployment process, right? Oh, amazing, like, yeah. Yeah, that's important. And actually, a lot of the times, that's not even the core people that we're dealing with doing that. They have a technical team doing it. Sure. What's really important is during that initial process, the real leaders, the people who are going to run this ongoing, are sitting down with our community team and saying, okay. But they've already bought the software. They've already bought it. So, so it's like there's no community building or exploration going on or like, you know, kind of pre-POC community stuff there's happening. A, there's a little bit of pre-sales that okay. does. We, again, insofar as we want to qualify, we don't want to go into a client who we don't think is in the right place, for lack of a better term, emotionally. <laughs> to actually buy the software and be successful. So maybe you have a survey or something that you send out just to Absolutely. understand if it's like, do they have enough engagement where people are really going to be... Right. Do they have a big enough problem, pain dis- point? Discovery, basically. Yeah, there's cool. that discovery and qualification process that our, our community development team works on. And then they sign the contract and they get them the implemented, contract. and now it's like, well, you've, got a, you've got a playbook and it has different sort of timelines and estimates different for timelines, how long... Different timelines, estimates, tactics, strategies... Yeah. You deliver this playbook no, to the no, the playbook okay. does never goes to a client because we don't expect the client to know how to do it. That's the whole point okay. is that the client's got to do a lot of the work themselves, but we're their guide on that journey. Are you collaborating in any kind of tool together? Is it shared Google Doc or is it like what are you doing? Depends to- on the client's infrastructure. A okay. lot of time, again, we're, we're dealing with these kind of 10, 20, 30, 50, 100,000 person organizations. Sure. We've got to adapt to part of what they're paying us for is to adapt to their sure. work style. So it's a lot of video conferencing, too. We're really okay. big fans of video conferences and actually getting to look at someone. So they're not going on-site. They're not going Sometimes. to the Sometimes. So well, okay. that was my next thing I was going to yeah. say is going on-site's inconvenient, I think, for a lot of daily meeting-type stuff, regular yeah. meeting-type stuff. But I'm a huge believer in it for the first meeting, or at okay. least one of the early ones. I think, you know, you form relationships by looking another person in the eye and shaking their hand. Build a little trust. Exactly. Yeah, have that human element. Once you've done that, even just one meeting for half an hour, you can do everything else over the phone. And again, there's a big difference between looking at someone on a Zoom or a Google Hangout where they're like right in front of a computer sure. screen staring at you than like a conference call with eight people. You know, So we do a lot of Zoom and Google Hangouts as well. Again, depends on... What WebEx? You probably have a subscription to every possible uh, we don't, video conference. We, we just have Zoom and Hangouts, but okay. we use the client stuff for everything else. Okay, cool. Got it. So, yeah, from there, it's, okay, tell us about your thing. You know, tell us what you're facing, what you're doing, what you want to get out of this. Okay, here's the playbook that you need to run. And we'll do everything from, yeah, the strategic level down to tactics and specific things to be doing down to we have pre-written emails yeah, great. that we will customize for them and send to them and be like, send out. Now, they again, they have to do all this work themselves. We're not going to go around their organization for them because we're not credible to do that. That won't be successful. Right. But we'll be there like, you know, it's kind of like the... Uh, any good sitcom where, like, you know, the person doesn't want to go on a date, so, like, their friends send them on a date with an earpiece in their ear and oh. tell them what to say <laughs> on the date. It's kind of like that. Like, we will help them to that extent. 
Like that is the level we will go to with our clients. Okay, so you have pre-built kind of generic collateral that you'll customize and yeah. like, hey, here's some templates that you can use to send out and like get people involved. We found that this is a subject line. Like, and it's really like that playbook has everything in it that step by step, you know, you can customize it as you're going along, but you're not just handing off the playbook. You're actually creating this kind of project plan together and bringing them along the whole way. Absolutely. And is it like during that implementation phase, is your community manager? Was that what yeah, community it? development? Is that person? Is it they have one customer at a time? They have five, ten. Customers? We think that right now we think that they can run about two to three active deployments per person. Got it. And still maintain that focus, and then you know, kind of manage an existing book of probably 20, 30, 40 clients, depending on. Sure. You know, what stage they're at. Because the kickoff is by far the most... Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we do monthly check-ins. You know, during the kickoff, we're talking to them one to two times a week, probably. But even on an ongoing basis after that, we're talking to our clients once a month. Sure. That does two really big things. One, we want to keep that partnership up. We want to know how they're doing. It's really valuable for us. We get feedback on what's going on. We help them solve any tricky issues that have come up. The other thing that's great about that is you never want the first time that you talk to a client after they buy, to be when you're calling them to ask them for the renewal. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to have a relationship with them all the way through. And so what's interesting to hear too is that you don't actually even, you don't structure this as like, oh, you have a license fee, plus you're going to get this whole implementation thing, and that's 100 hours at this price. You sort of bake it all into the licensing right. fee. It's, you pay a per-user licensing fee, and that includes everything. Yeah. The thing I want to caveat with that, though, is that was the right decision for us. Sure. We made that decision because we understood there is no separating the community development from the actual software itself. So we're like, we, we've got to roll this all into one. We then also decided to roll in the technical support because it's such a small amount of the overall time and expense we have mm -hmm. that it felt weird to split that. You know, you don't want to charge someone $200 a user or something for this plus an extra $1 for like technical support. It's weird. Yeah. So we decided to roll it all in together. For most people, I would say that's actually the wrong call because most organizations do have vastly different requirements when it comes to kind of the service and support. So you should absolutely think about for your particular product how required it is. You know, what what can we include that's the required amount that we know everyone should be doing to be successful? In which case, great, we're going to build that in versus what's more customizable and flexible and things and can get extra money for. Yeah, and I think it, it also probably feeds back into the way that you went to market with Stack Overflow Enterprise was you had this huge site that everybody loved and you know you had a ton of inbound interest for a business edition, right? And instead of saying, okay, let's start to step into the hipster enterprises first, right? Those companies with a thousand employees that, you know, or know how to do things in a modern way, you went straight to the top, right? You went to the the biggest organizations in the world and you said, okay, let's get these deals first, right? It's a different approach I think a lot of other people will take, right? Generally Well it was driven by necessity. Sure. So yeah, the you, you use the term hipster enterprise. I like to call it uh, SMB plus single sign on is kind of like you know, what what those middle ground ones are. Sure. So the reason we did it that way is, as I mentioned, we needed to go off and not disturb the rest of the company as we were kind of doing this. We needed to let people maintain the focus because you can only focus on so many things at one time. 
And the easiest thing for us to do was say, okay, let's just take an entire copy of the current software, add single sign-on, make it run in someone else's environment, and drop it there. But that version, that style, only works when you have at least 500 people who can join that community. If you've got at least 500 developers, that means you're probably about at least a 5,000-person organization total. You know, you might be a super tech-driven startup, you'd only be 1,000 people, but generally speaking, you're probably at least 5,000 people. So everything we did around that enterprise, the reason we went to that enterprise is because it was, in a way, more easily abstractable away from everything else. Since then, we've come back and we've created Stack Overflow for Teams. The whole idea behind that is you don't need 500 people there, right? How do we go below 500 people? Well, we use the fact that your team's already on stackoverflow.com today. Enterprise is a new place, completely standalone. Teams is on stackoverflow.com. So you can make it work easily with a five or ten person team, which it just won't work if it's a standalone. It's just thing. like surfacing the content that's internal. Exactly. On top, yeah. Exactly. It's still completely private, totally isolated. That was a huge project. That alone, making Stack Overflow for Teams, was a year-long project. As I always say, it was one of the most complex things you can do, which is changing a fundamental assumption about software. Right. Right. When we launched Stack Overflow, all content was always going to be public. Uh-oh, when you change that assumption, how, how do you do that? How do you do that right? So that was a much bigger project that required most of our engineering team for months on end in order to get done right. Now we have it. It's great. It's an amazing product. We just launched it in May of 2018, so it's not been out there that long, but we've already got thousands of companies who are using it and really like it. And we've already seen kind of them moving up that towards the enterprise one. We actually mm-hmm. have people who started with, yeah, only a few people on it, but have now grown and are actually big enough to go to the enterprise product if they want to. Mm, interesting. And so this is, we talked a little bit offline too about this idea of the continuum, right? So when you started, you went to the most extreme enterprise end of the continuum. And then you launch teams to sort All of... All the way at the exact opposite yeah, end of exactly. the continuum. And now we're building towards the middle. Yeah. So we're actually working on another version. I can announce on this podcast here, we are working on a version to cover exactly what we just called, you know, the hipster enterprise ones, right? Where they want that completely web-based version. They don't want to have to run any of their own infrastructure, but they do need some extra features like single sign-on, certain SLAs, sure, things like that. So that's going to actually be coming soon because, yeah, we know that there's a big demand in there too. But again, that's actually the hardest possible version to build. Yeah. Because it required both building like the small team version first to enable it on the site, while then also building all of the enterprise features that they care about. Sure. But then it sounds like you'll have a pretty wide spectrum of possible. Once we're there, we will be able to cover any company from two to 200,000 people. Yeah. Two million people. Instead of like either. Open to the public or 200, you know, the biggest right. companies yeah, in the so, world. So yeah. we were at a point where it was just open to the public. Then it was open to the public or if you have a thousand or more developers. Then we got to, okay, two to like 100, 200 people or 500 plus people, but not a great option for people in like the 200 to 500 person range. And now we're going to kind of have that total continuum all the way across. And as you, throughout the whole process, was there ever second guessing, oh, maybe we should have built teams first? Is that a thing you did? Yeah, I mean, I think there was more of the wish or the fantasy that we could have done it (laughs) than the thinking that we did it wrong. Yeah. Again, we understood the constraints that we had at the time, and so I don't think anyone's ever said, oh, man, we did this wrong. I think, if anything, it's, oh, God, why didn't we start doing this five years ago? Oh, interesting. Like, that's the biggest thing is that 
we had kind of written off, actually, back in like 2010, 2011, written off the idea of doing this kind of private Q&A software business. And we kind of wish we hadn't. I mean, all along, though, you just built up more and more demand, likely, for the product. Absolutely. Right? I mean, so. the, the number of unique users every month on Stack Overflow has probably tripled since then. Yeah. So it's only become more and more of a part of developers' daily workflows. But you know, I think one thing is in business, you always wish you'd started everything that's working earlier. Yeah, I have this thing that I always say whenever I when I became a an entrepreneur, I'd always had a problem with like procrastination in in my prior life, and then when I became a founder, my first company, I realized that every idea that I had, that I, I was like, oh, we should do this now. But then the, the next realization would be. Oh my gosh, I should have thought of that six months ago. Yes. So instantly by having a new thought, I would have thought, I would have been like, I've already procrastinated on it by six months. And so it created this insane sense of urgency for every new idea. Right. And the other thing you then realize is, oh, and because I'm already working on that other idea I had six months ago now, I've got to wait another six months to start pursuing this idea. Right. Or just try to do it all and don't sleep. Yeah, that doesn't work. (laughs) That really doesn't work. Right. Or hire people. That's it. Why one can work. There's still a limit to how much you can do, though, with true. focus. True, true. Okay, so, man, it's it's so interesting, that approach. I, I think one thing that's probably important is instead of second-guessing and then, like, halfway through trying to build teams, like, you just stayed the course, right? Like, you stayed the course and said, you know, we're going to keep going enterprise. This is the right path for us. We'll get there eventually. And, you know, because I think oftentimes you get into a project and you realize how hard it is, and then you're, you're like, oh, maybe we should have done the other thing first, and you sort of you don't, you never see it all the way through, right? This is a this is a challenge you see oftentimes when people start doing new stuff, and so I love that you just saw it through, you continue to see it through, and then you're like, yep, we'll backfill it later, and you have a probably have a long enough time horizon at Stack Overflow where you're able to sort of say, hey, in three years we know we can set these goals. Absolutely. And yeah. I can tell you where we want to be with the product in a year, in three years, in five years. And it's not just about, yeah, that individual product. It's how it ties into the overall ecosystem, both for Stack Overflow itself and the industry as a whole. That's cool. You can tell us now or, or not? No. Okay, yeah. No, no. I can, I can tell myself <laughs> where it is. Yeah, I get we, it. We got to keep some secrets. Yeah, no problem. I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Okay, so then you know, what are some of the other lessons that you feel like you've learned along the way while building Stack Overflow Enterprise? So your first couple deals will always deceive you. You're going to go around and read a bunch of blog posts about how long this stuff takes and how it gets dragged out and where all your choke points are. And then your first couple deals, you're not going to run into those and you're going to be, ha ha, those are ridiculous and they're wrong. They're not. Like, it's, it's unbelievable and you really do run into everything. Um, there's, there's a number of people who have done great writing on this. Uh, in particular, I really like Mark Suster's blogs and posts about this. In particular, I think the most important post anyone can read is his posts on Nina's, which is no influence, no authority people, mm-hmm. because they really will suck up just so so much of your time. And so I think one of the best things I did is knowing that going in, knowing how important the sales qualification process was, is huge. The other thing and this goes back to that idea I said of having to retrain the organization on how to work in this specific business, is learning how to understand when you want to hire for specialty versus eagerness, basically, right? Because you really do need both. I mean, obviously, having someone who's a complete expert in their field and really excited about taking on something new 
and will do anything that's required as part of a startup is great. But the you know when when it comes to I think especially internal promotion, right? When do you make an outside specialized hire who has done it before versus an outside hire who hasn't done it before but looks potential versus an internal promotion? You can't do all of one or all of the other. You've got to figure out that balance. The yeah. way the way that I've started to approach it now really comes down to what does the level of competency and support system inside the organization for that role already look like? So a good example of that is, is this the first product marketer you've ever hired, right? Or is this the first financial analyst or first CFO you've ever hired? You better hire someone who's done it before because they're going to have no support structure inside the organization, especially if they have to train the organization in how to work with this function. Let's say you're a salesperson. If you've been a head of sales, actually, let's say, and you need to hire a head of sales, then it's a lot easier to promote someone who you think has the right skills, not just your best salesperson, but you think has the right skills, because you can coach and develop them. Now, you make sure you have enough time to do that, but at least fundamentally, you have the skills, you have the experience to do that. So just building that balance between, okay, here's where we're going to promote someone up, here's where we're going to go out and seat that outside expert and advice, really important to figure out, because otherwise you just kind of keep running into the same problems of everyone's upset because they don't feel like there's any promotion ability, but then on the flip side, no one knows how to actually do anything because you know they're having to spend a lot of time relearning these lessons that someone who'd done it before would have done. Sorry, would have known. Yeah, okay, I like that a lot. So that that framework seems to be super valuable for, and you, you do you apply this sort of like every time you're thinking about a new role, or is this like mainly for leadership roles? Like what's your... I think about this for almost any role we do, especially when it's the first role. So similar thing, mm. we recently hired a role where we were hiring a product marketing manager focused on the growth of our team's business, one of the things we identified is, you know, it's really important here is we're running a B2B self-serve SaaS funnel. No one inside the organization really has a lot of experience doing that. We've always done kind of very sales-driven funnels, whether it's on our ads or talent business or the enterprise mm. business. This is somewhere we should really be going out of house and getting that particular experience sure. because we really needed it. The flip side is, when you know most of our development roles and like our engineering manager roles now, we actually look to hire from within on those because we've got a structure that we can promote people with and actually develop and train them on. This is something that I, I always think a lot about, right? Because I I have a bias towards people being on move up through the organization, right? Mm -hmm. Because I trust them, we hired them, we love them, they're amazing. And like as you know, founders, like we've had to level ourselves up constantly, right? So that's my like inherent bias. So this is perfect because I can point out now that that's a false dichotomy in my mind. Okay. You're actually, if you just promote people without a support structure and someone they can learn and develop from, you're actually doing them a disservice at the end of the day because A, how are they supposed to figure out what to do? And B, you're going to just end up annoyed with them and annoyed with the fact that you're not moving fast enough. So especially when you're talking about, yeah, do we promote someone up into a management role? Do we bring in and level layer them with a new manager? I think the thing you really look for is, all right, let's, you know, we probably need a new manager, but one of the key criteria needs to be, how are they going to do with supporting that existing team and leveling those people up so that they can become our next manager as we continue to expand? Yeah, yeah. I think that because I have that inherent bias, I have to acknowledge that inherent bias, right? And then try to make sure that I'm 
being thoughtful about, okay, does our team have the skill set we need or should we be trying to bring people in from the outside that can really help out and scale that role? Now, it turns out when you're a pretty small company, right, we're like 20 people, you have to hire a lot of people from outside mm-hmm. because, like, you just don't have that many people in the organization. And, you know, you have people all different skill levels, but, like, my goal is always, like, over time, I want to continue to develop people so that they can grow and they feel like there's, you know, there's opportunity. But it's a challenge, like, both sides, right? Like, you know, and we were talking earlier about it, the amount of time that you spend interviewing and recruiting folks can just be, as the leader of your organization, can be so, it's so time-consuming, right? Is there anything you do in order to, like, do you guys have an internal recruiter that's helping to screen folks for you? Yeah, we have a whole probably 10-person HR team because Stack Overflow as a whole is 300 people. Okay. So this is one of kind of the little upsides of building a startup inside a startup is there is a lot of existing infrastructure we can rely on there. But then this is your point around some of the training that you have to do internally. There you go. Right. That's the flip side is there's a lot of existing process and things that we have to comply with or existing systems that we have to use and rely on that we don't actually get to pick. And I think anyone who's ever worked inside a big company, you know, in a single team inside a big company, is really used to that kind of inherent trade-off there. Right, but even so, like the team that you have that's doing recruiting has probably never hired a product marketing manager before, right? So at least not this, yeah, not this specific type. They've hired product marketers before, and they, of course, may have done it in a previous role. Sure. So it's then just about, I think, a really strong collaboration and partnership between them. Yeah, it's it's actually it's really interesting to think about the duality for the sort of supporting roles, back office roles. They have to sort of be able to be both consumer and enterprise. Like they need to really understand both worlds, right? Those mm-hmm. the supporting roles. That's probably hard to to find. I mean, it's a great experience, but that's that's not a super common skill set, right? No, and I think it goes back to why you have to have a strong partnership and between them and the folks who are doing a lot of the work is because a lot of that context can be explained easily if you kind of take the time to sit down and talk through them and be able to. But a lot of times, I think in a lot of companies, there's a tension between those groups. And you need to just figure out ways to kind of humanize them to each other, mm-hmm. make sure everyone understands why people are doing. I think context, explaining why you're doing the things you're doing or why things are the way you are as opposed to making it feel like it's an arbitrary or capricious thing. The flip side is one side can't make the other side feel like they constantly have to justify themselves and justify their existence. It's a, I think it's a careful balance, and this goes back to why company culture is so important. Mm. And so it probably helped a lot for the enterprise business that you had had such a sort of fundamental and important role in the, as the person kind of leading operations and culture inside of the company before you took on the enterprise side, right? I, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think certainly the fact that I think it's important has had an effect, and I've tried to I've tried to spend a lot of time on that. I guess my point there being like someone maybe with less agency inside of your organization who tried to spin up the enterprise, mm-hmm. like you know portion of the business. Maybe they just they've been hired in. Maybe your CEO hires in Absolutely. someone to run the enterprise business. They don't have the working knowledge of the organization. They don't have the seven years or you know at that point four years of back history that you had with everyone that trust. That's a hard. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That I think that's a reason a lot of the time you'll see any internal skunkworks project internally, I think is almost always initially kicked off by an internal person by exactly that reason. Once it gets established, they may bring in an outside head and maybe they're planning to replace me right now, but <laughs> I think absolutely you you just check you'll stack see overflow that. jobs. Yeah, exactly. There yeah. we go. I think absolutely you'll see 
that be the case inside a lot of companies because, yeah, they, you save so much time knowing just how to use the organization and the tools and the assets that already exist in it. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting perspective there. I think I'm sure that there's a lot of folks out there, you know, this idea of taking a existing company and finding how to add, you know, new lines of business into it, I mean, is, you know, what do they, they call that? entrepreneurship or something but like I mean it's a really important part of like how companies grow because the your options are like you either acquire or you do this and you figure out how to do this is this something that stack overflow has done like with other lines of business I mean you gotta I guess you kind of have a, a family of businesses yeah so we have we have two other lines of business which is our engagement business which helps companies run very targeted very uh, calm ads as we say on our site of things that developers might be interested in. That was kind of the first and oldest business. Soon after that, we spun up the talent business, Stack Overflow Jobs. So it's called Talent for Employers, Jobs for Developers. So we definitely have some of those businesses have grown and evolved over time and gotten new products and offerings that have been part of them. This was really, I think, the first time we were building out like a new, especially something that was just so drastically different than mm-hmm. the other two. Those aren't really kind of, you know, they're not enterprise SaaS businesses. But like, do you think that this is a skill set that you'll continue to use and find? Oh, absolutely. New, yeah. I, I could see myself going to you know companies big and small after this and taking this kind of role. For me, I, I really enjoy it because I'm a big fan of the rapid iteration thing and building startups. I love that. I kind of don't care if it's its own independent thing, standalone or inside a big sure. company. It's all just kind of, for me, the challenge and the fun is in the actual act of the building. Yeah, and I mean, do you, and you also think that like Stack will need to be able to add on these new product lines over time as well and find those new opportunities and the, some of the lessons you learned around, you know, that skunk works and creating that organization. Like, like you think that those apply to the next, you know, whatever next next skunk works project is. Absolutely. Because I can I can already see too what some of those projects might be. Oh cool. And so you you laid the foundations, the the pattern, and other people will be able to follow that to create the next yeah, I think the and I just think the organization by us all of us working together has figured out how you do this better. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take credit for that. It's just been the exercise that you go through by doing something the first time. It's the hardest time to go from one product to multi products to go from you know one sort of line of business to another totally separate mm-hmm. type of business. I mean, there's a lot of you. Seems like you've made a pretty like you you found the path. Yeah. Well, we we actually even saw this in spinning up Stack Overflow for teams, while it was a lot of technical work to do, there was a lot of work that it was easier in a lot of ways to do some of that stuff because we'd gone through it once before and now we see it with kind of working on this middle version of it that'll bridge the gap between the two. So much of that work I can already see is being eased by the work we did on Stack Overflow for teams. Yeah, and one of the big challenges that I personally I've been facing, and I'm guessing based on your recent hire, it's something that you've also been toiling with, is just how do you communicate all of these things and how they're different and how they work to the market, right? Mm-hmm. Like the first version of Stack Overflow Enterprise, you're like, it's Stack Overflow in your, yep, in your environment, right? right? How do you balance the difference between Stack Overflow for teams versus the, and and the thing you don't appreciate is like you live in this. All day, every day, you understand every minute difference. You're literally incapable of understanding how the market is going to perceive it just because you're not your own customer once you start doing this, I think. Yeah. 
And so this is one of the reasons we're looking for people who specialize in it and you know, really know how to do this and understand. And you know, even with building this function internally, we continue to work with outside people who do this on a daily basis, but not for us, is it's that outside perspective and experience is really important. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, Alex, any other parting thoughts before we head out? No, I just reinforce kind of, I think the key things I was talking about earlier, which is get to know your customers really well, focus relentlessly on what they're doing. Don't forget about your internal culture. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.